Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and occasionally I like to get back in front of the microphone and interview someone with an exciting new book. And when I saw Eugene Reichel's book, Governing Habits, Treating Alcoholism in the Post-Soviet Clinic, I thought this is a book that I have to read and I'd really like to talk to Eugene. He's been on the New Books Network before. The reason this book has a special resonance for me is that I'm a recovering alcoholic myself and have been in AA for many, many years. And although I studied Russia for a long time, I, I never knew anything about the way that alcoholism was treated in the Soviet Union. I certainly don't know anything about the way it's treated today. But I'm happy to say that we have Eugene on board and, and he's going to tell us all about how it is treated. And it was very eye-opening for me because I read a lot of things that I did not expect. Let's put it that way. Yeah, it was. it's a whole different approach to the treatment of alcoholism than um, at least the one I'm familiar with here in the United States. So first, let me say to Eugene, thank you for writing the book. Well, well thank you uh, for having me on the, the show. Absolutely. Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself, Eugene? Sure. Um, so I'm trained as a medical and cultural anthropologist. Um, I did um, a postdoc in transcultural psychiatry, uh, and I currently uh, teach um, in the Department of Comparative Human Development, which is an interdisciplinary department at the University of Chicago. Okay, great. And um, could you tell us why you wrote Governing Habits Treating Alcoholism in the Post-Soviet Clinic? Sure. So the um, one important uh, contextual factor to to put out there. This, this is a book that grew out of my uh, dissertation um, uh, that I completed while I was at uh, Princeton University. Um, and the motivation for writing, picking this, this topic in particular, uh, there were a few things. Um, when I started out uh, as a graduate student, I was actually interested in broadly in questions of social transformation, social memory, in sort of broadly issues of political and cultural transformation in the post-Soviet uh, area. And, I, and one of the reasons I was interested in, in that area in particular is because I is biographical. I was I was born in in Russia and immigrated with my family to the U.S. when I was uh, four years old. Mm. So it was the place when I got into anthropology. It was the place that made sense to to go to, um, but in terms of alcohol in particular, uh, I got interested in it uh, in a couple of ways. One was reading through some of the public health literature that was coming out in the had been coming out since the mid 1990s, which had shown this a massive uh, drop in life expectancy and rise in mortality, especially among men, um, that occurred especially between 1990 and 1993. Um, it was really phenomenal and levels that uh, authors referred to as unheard of outside of wartime conditions in industrialized countries. And all of the literature around this um, implicated alcohol in some way. It was obviously complicated and was people argued about how it was linked to the mortality rise, but alcohol clearly played an important role. Uh, 
So I thought that was something quite interesting. Um, but initially what I thought I would do was to uh, undertake a project that would look at alcohol in a broad sense, sort of from all different perspectives, not only the medical. Um, so I thought I was going to look at alcohol as it was administered, uh, regulated, uh, sold, and so on. Um, and in addition to kind of the medical aspects of dealing with the consequences of its consumption. Um, but that very quickly turned out to be clearly too enormous of a project to take <laughs> on, um, <laughs> at least in the context of that dissertation project. Um, and at the, the other thing that happened was that when I, I kind of stumbled upon this world of narcology, this world of addiction, alcoholism treatment, I found it was so different from what I had come to expect, the, the ways in which I had come to expect alcohol was treated in North America, um, that I just got really fascinated with that. And that became the subject matter of the, of the book itself. And I thought, you know, this is really this is a project in and of itself here. Um, and, and in a sense, a very anthropological project because of the, you know, there's a kind of a, a longstanding trope in anthropology, right? That we make the familiar strange. So this was something very, um, I'm sorry, make this, the, the, the strange familiar, mm -hmm. right? Um, and this was something very, that seemed very strange to me that seemed like there was an interesting project of figuring out how do we, how do we understand it, right? From our, um, perspective. Mm -hmm. Narcology. Well, we'll talk a lot about that. It's a wonderful word. I'm glad it's uh, entered the English lexicon. Maybe it's entered the English lexicon thanks to you. <laughs> I hope that it has. Um, could you begin with a little bit of a historical backgrounder and tell us how uh, the Soviets, at some point I won't specify, how uh, alcoholism or uh, very heavy and disruptive drinking or however you want to um, characterize it was treated in the Soviet Union? Yeah, um, I think to even get there, I think I'd want to step even further back and just give the context of the role that alcohol played in the Soviet state more mm -hmm. generally, Go ahead. which gives us a sense of why it was so prevalent, right? So uh, even, you know, going back to the 19th century and earlier in the Tsarist state, even before the Soviets, um, the production and taxation of um, of alcohol and particularly vodka played an enormous role in um, in uh, putting together the budget of the 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 Russian and then the later the Soviet state um, and in the in the late Tsarist period this actually became a, a huge point of contention around which the politics of the period uh, were um, kind of fomented with the uh, Tsarist uh, vodka mon monopoly uh, becoming a kind of a focus of a lot of anti-government, um, anti-state uh, sentiment. The Soviets uh, actually inherited a dry law that had been instated during World War One, but soon after that, in the 1920s, it became clear that because they were wanting to industrialize, especially under Stalin, uh, they essentially reverted to this old system of um, a vodka monopoly and and uh, selling vodka, producing and selling vodka for in order to fill the, the state's coffers. And this production uh, continued to rise throughout the 30s. And by World War II, it was already 
accounting for a, a significant portion of the of the um, the state uh, economy. Um, and so this is all just to say that this is, uh, you know, the, the, the levels of consumption um, were not coming out of n nowhere and nor were they coming out of some kind of, uh, you know, that we, we tend to have this idea of this mythical Russian drinking culture that just stands on its own and is um, that, 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 that these desires for, for drinking and these kind of customs come out of nowhere. That, they didn't come out of nowhere. They were actually really shaped by the political economy of uh, of the state and the way that the state uh, made money off of uh, these things um, and, and the way the state encouraged the consumption of particular kinds of alcohol like vodka. Okay, so that's the background. By the 1950s and 60s, uh, the, one of the, the state essentially starts to see or, or some agents of the state start to see the consequences of this sort of policy in the form of um, various kinds of health indicators that are showing um, negative negative effects due to alcohol use. Um, at the same time, there wasn't a real, it wasn't really allowed to have an um, open conversation about alcohol because that would be tantamount to critiquing the state. This is still in the late Stalinist, early Khrushchev period. Um, and so what they end up doing to deal with this is they start a series of these anti-alcohol campaigns. Um, and mostly these campaigns are carried out, um, you know, in the classic manner of these Soviet campaigns. They would, they would roll out a bunch of, uh, uh, um, they, would, they would organize some um, kind of organizations that a bunch of people would join to, 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 to protest alcohol use and, and to, to uh, um, kind of foreground uh, uh, encourage sobriety. Uh, and then they would, uh, you know, print these famous posters that you can find on the, the Internet. Um, and they would occasionally curtail production to a certain degree. The final one of these, and we can talk about this separately, was the one that occurred during the 1980s under Gorbachev. And this was, of course, the, the final Soviet mass campaign. Mm -hmm. mass, the final kind of, that in some ways some people argue was the thing that didn't necessarily bring down the Soviet Union, but kind of stretched the limits of the, the party state to its, to the extent where it was clear that it wasn't able to, to, to do what it, what it, what it meant to do, right? Um, so during the course of these campaigns, the earlier ones in the 50s, 60s, and in the 70s, um, they're gradually, they started to put together a series of institutions that slowly became, by the mid-1970s, um, a narcological uh, uh, addiction treatment system. And the system was actually founded in um, 1975, and it had a few different elements. It had um, outpatient uh, dispensaries, which were like outpatient clinics. It had hospitals to which people could be admitted for inpatient stays. Um, and then it had these kind of more penal institutions um, uh, uh, called uh, 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 penal labor prophylactories, which were basically, uh, they were like uh, prison colonies to which people could be sent for two or three years if they proved themselves to be kind of chronic alcoholics who resisted treatment. 
Um, there were other, and, and the interesting thing about the system is that part of it was under the aegis of the Ministry of Health, and part of it was under the aegis of the Ministry of Internal Affairs, which is this kind of internal police ministry, right? Um, so that's that's a, a, a broad picture of at least the main kind mm-hmm. of institutions that were present during the Soviet period. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the actual forms of, of treatment or what they did with patients in these settings, there were a number of uh, methods that arose, um, again, were developed throughout the 20th century. And here the, the, the main piece of context that we need to have is that um, this was all coming out of Soviet uh, psychiatry. And Soviet psychiatry um, from the, particularly the, let's say the 1930s and then increasingly from the 40s and 50s, was dominated um, by a Pavlovian kind of a framework. In some ways, similarly, in, similar to the way that, you know, in North America, psychiatry became very Freudian. In the Soviet Union, psychiatry became very Pavlovian, but for very different reasons. Because, uh, again, um, there were agents in the party state who decided that this would be the appropriate um, uh, kind of framework uh, to, to that the Pavlov's ideas were the best ones to um, create a real Marxist form of psychiatry and psychology. Um, and so they gradually implemented this to the point the the pinnacle of this came in in uh, 1949 and 1950 where there was this famous set of Pavlov sessions where basically they declared Pavlov or Pavlov's ideas he'd been dead for some time by then his ideas as the 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 foundation for a new uh, psychiatry psychology and physiology so there was a whole question of sort of how do you do this kind of psychiatry? And there's been some really interesting historical work recently done um, looking at this and how it was actually much more complicated than we might think. Um, so a number of treatments actually came out of this Pavlovian sort of paradigm. One of them that became the most associated with the Soviet period was what was called um, conditional reflex therapy. So it was very straightforwardly kind of Pavlovian in the same way that, you know, Pavlov taught his uh, dogs to salivate at the sound of the bell. Um, the idea here was that uh, you would, you could teach uh, alcoholics or chronic uh, drinkers, right, to uh, have a negative, to have a, uh, to basically vomit or have a, a, a nauseous kind of reaction um, to the sight, smell, or mention of alcohol. And they would do this by um, using an emetic, a, 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 a substance that would induce nausea, um, and giving people a little bit to drink. They would actually even do it in a more elaborate way. They would set up a bar. They would like set up a bar or drinking setting in these hospitals so to condition people to have an aversion to the whole setting of alcohol consumption. Um, and they would have people drink, and then they would inject them with this uh, emetic, um, and then everyone would, they would often do this also in groups. The idea was that the groupness sort of reinforced this process, right? Um, and uh, then everyone would vomit into special 
containers that they had there. And, uh, and then they would do this multiple times a day. It was really a brutal kind of a treatment. Um, multiple times a day. And the idea was that you would, uh, your body would become conditioned to have this aversive re- reaction to anything having to do with alcohol. Um, you know, the, the interesting thing about that uh, therapy is that um, when I talked to, it wasn't, it, so that was phased out with the Soviet period. It was seen as too much uh, inhumane to, to continue. But uh, many of the physicians I talked to, you know, in the 2000s uh, really felt like it was effective. But the problem was with it was not just, not anything inherent to it. Uh, but that it was practiced under conditions of involuntary sort of lack of consent from the patients. Mm-hmm. So their their point was, well, if you'd only gotten patients to actually consent to do doing something like this, um, then it would be effective, right? Which I which I thought was, it, was mm-hmm. an interesting distinction. Um, and then um, the other main modes of therapy that were popular in the Soviet Union, and these really have continued to be quite popular in the post-Soviet period as well, are these uh, large group of therapies, sometimes known as kadirovanya or coding, um, which are essentially a set of uh, methods that draw on um, uh, principles of hypnotic suggestion. Uh, And these involve altering the patient's body in some way um, so as and telling the patient, convincing the patient um, that their body has been altered in some way so as to, to render alcohol consumption fatal, mm-hmm. right? So something gets done to you in a very rich, usually ritualized kind of a format. Um, and then you are told that there's been a, sometimes a code that's been putting in your, put in your head, in your brain, um, sometimes it's actually done with with real kind of uh, um, with implants of, of different chemicals, some of which are nominally at least real kinds of uh, medications. Um, and but basically, you're told if you drink under these conditions, now you might die. And the idea here is that uh, for the physicians, the the the, the 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 trick is to kind of do uh, perform a compelling enough um, sort of performance for the for the patients to for them to be convinced that this method is really mm-hmm. um, effective, right? Mm-hmm. It sort of rests on that. Um, and then the other aspect of it that I that I spent a lot of the book looking at is that the physicians are actually very concerned with the legitimacy of these therapies. The reputation of these therapies, so they spent they spend some time um, trying to manage the sort of representation of these therapies more generally because they're they're concerned about the possibility that these things would get discredited, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So before I ask you, uh, um, and there may be no answer to this, I recognize that how, if these were effective or not, can we talk a little bit about the way in which the narcologists understood alcoholism? Because, of course, you know that in, in the United States, this is a, a very fraught topic, and nobody really knows what to think about it. And it's it's one yeah. of the things that, in, in AA, at least, we don't argue about. We don't even really talk about it. You're an alcoholic if you say you are. That's pretty much it. Yeah. <laughs> so how did they understand it? 
Well, I mean, I would start by saying I think that there was not um, at least, you know, and, and here I'm talking about in the 2000s and, and more recently when I've done my field work, mm-hmm. right? Not, not necessarily in the Soviet period. Um, I don't think that there was necessarily a kind of uh, any kind of consensus among physicians. Um, you could easily find people who would um, agree with a kind of, uh, you know, this big sort of biopsycho social, spiritual understanding of uh, addiction or alcoholism that sometimes gets associated with AA. Um, uh, so there's not, there's not like a, uh, it's not homogenous in any way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, I would say that in general, it, it, it definitely felt to me that and and here here there was a contrast because I, part of the field work I did I should add was in these in these hospitals in the in the addiction uh, the state run addiction centers um, and part of the field work I did was in actually in a twelve step based uh, clinic where people were basically being inculcated with the ideas of AA and mm-hmm. sort of enculturated into AA mm-hmm. um, so that gave me a, a kind of opportunity to sort of uh, move back and forth between these two settings and sort of compare and contrast how people thought about alcoholism in the two places. And in AA, you know, as you say, it's very much about if you say you're addicted, it's all about self-identification in some way. Um, and also there's the sense that everyone has that potential in them. Mm-hmm. It's not, right? Like it's yep. not something that is about a certain set of, I mean, it is about a certain set of people in some sense, but it's also something everyone has in potential. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not really the way that a lot of the physicians tended to think about it. It, it felt to, among many of the physicians in the, in the, uh, the, the uh, uh, hospital um, much more that this was something um, that we could find some kind of objective physiology mm-hmm. to or find some kind of you know, underlying disease state or that we should try to find that, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I I don't know that that's necessarily so different from, you know, I think many physicians elsewhere would agree with that as well because they're physicians Mm -hmm. and they have that kind of a a general framework. One really interesting thing I've been tracking recently, and 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 it appeared in the book, but in not as to as great a degree as it might have, is um, this debate that's been taking place about a since the, well, it's been taking place for a while, but it kind of came to a head in the in 2010. Um, uh, this debate about sort of the the nature of addiction and alcoholism, um, and basically there's a group of um, narcologists and psychiatrists who are very closely uh, linked to they have they have very close ties to um, the, the places that they work are essentially very powerful ones and set the agenda for narcology um, nationwide in Russia. And a number of them have put forward this uh, theory of alcoholism as something like a delusion um, or craving as a kind of delusion, alcoholism as a kind of um, something approaching a kind of a psychotic state. Um, And this is used partly to argue for the idea that alcoholics and addicts 
because a lot of what they're dealing mm-hmm. with also is opiate addiction, um, should be treated in the same way legally as people with severe mental illnesses mm-hmm. are. In other words, it should be easier to hospitalize people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and also it's used to, uh, to kind of foreground or legitimate certain kinds of therapies over others. Mm-hmm. And we can, we can talk about that a little bit mm-hmm. later. But, um, so this has been a really big debate. And then there's a bunch of psychiatrists arguing back against them, saying who are trying to promote uh, behavioral or psychosocial kinds of perspectives to alcoholism, which are a little bit more in line with what we see globally, or at least in, at least in North America. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a very it's a very live debate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, just one point of clarification. Now, in Soviet times, how, how did you make your way into the narcological system? Could could your family members go to the authorities and say uh, we think that Vanya here uh, needs some time yes. in the tank? Yes, they could. Yeah, they could. And I think that you know, and and officially it was, it was, uh, it, it often came from either that uh, source or it could come from your uh, employers. Um, officially, it had to go through a um, a, a, a psychiatrist and a, and a judge. Um, but my understanding is that during this period, um, the majority of um, the majority of these cases cases that were initiated um, were um, ended in the person getting getting forced treatment, right, mm-hmm. or commitment to the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's you know that's that's. Uh, and, th- and there was it definitely could come from that. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to say there was no AA in the Soviet Union. They didn't have any. No, there was no AA in the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Um, I see. AA enters. The first groups are established in the mid 1980s. Um, basically, during so basically, this is a time when there's two things going on. There is this final uh, Soviet anti-alcohol campaign happening. Um, Beginning, I think, in 1986, um, and then under under Gorbachev, and then also the initiation of the first attempts of this kind of glasnost and perestroika policies of of, uh, mm-hmm. of Gorbachev, and so you had these first U.S. commissions, uh, U.S. delegations coming to the Soviet Union to discuss the way that these the two countries had dealt with the problem of alcoholism in the context of the Soviet. Um, it was a kind of information sharing idea, mm-hmm. and, and some of the people who came along with this um, were AA members and were sort of, you know, kind of unofficially representatives of AA. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. Um, unofficially, because they don't, they, you know, because the nature of AA right. wouldn't be. Nobody speaks for AA. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, but but they ended up. A couple of these folks ended up um, establishing some groups. In the in the 80s, uh, there was another interesting route that things came to the Soviet Union, which was from Poland. Because in Poland, oh. they had had um, AA groups since the 1970s, actually huh. during during socialism, um, and a lot of the early AA literature was actually translated from Polish to Russian. How do you like for that? that reason? That's interesting. Yeah, that's very interesting. So, in 1991 and the years that followed, did the system of well. I don't know how to put this. What sort of 
um, impact did the fall of the Soviet Union have on the narcological system? How did the narcologists, if we can call them that, adapt? Yeah. Um, so a number of uh, changes occurred. Um, number one, uh, and this was very important, uh, is that most of the um, some of the authorities that narcologists had, um, specifically the authority that they had to call on the the police to um, force their patient patients into treatment, um, uh, which was this, this this whole kind of regime of forced treatment was done away with. Also, uh, what was done away with was the this that system of uh, penal colonies that they could potentially send people to. That was also taken apart, and both under the names of name of kind of human rights and aligning the Russian system more with European and worldwide um, norms, essentially. Uh, those were those were done away with, um, and uh, you know that had a sort of paradoxical, uh, a kind of complex effect on for the for the narcologists because um, that, in some ways, undermined along with a number of other changes I'll mention in a second, undermined a lot of the basis for their disciplinary power. Um, the other changes that occurred. Uh, one of them was that, of course, the funding for the system dropped um, rapidly. I mean, this was a period mm -hmm. of economic depression in Russia, right, throughout uh, throughout the economy. So this was not only this was just one area, um, and one area that was not particularly well funded. Um, and so what happened, and this is again something that you see happening all over the former Soviet Union is that individual kind of units start within broader state enterprises start to function as uh, more or less as commercial units. Um, so they start to sell services, even though officially they're providing, they're pr providing nominally uh, free of charge services for people like that's the, that was the policy, but they start to charge for different services. Um, one of the interesting services they start to charge for is anonymity <laughs> and <laughs> this is interesting because um, the, the reason they're able to charge for this is the, is that during the Soviet period there was this uh, list uh, register of people who were were officially designated to be alcoholics or drug addicts for mm -hmm. each uh, for each city, right? Mm -hmm. And if you were on that list, um, you were not allowed to get a driver's license, you weren't allowed to get a gun permit, and mm -hmm. you were restricted in other ways, like you weren't allowed to go um, do foreign travel and so on. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, in the post-Soviet period, you have also emerging these commercial centers uh, for for treatment. And the commercial centers don't have any obligation to put people on the register. So what they provide is so-called, what starts getting called this anonymous treatment. So the, the folks who are, who, are, who are working in the state, uh, state uh, centers see that this anonymous treatment is being offered and they start to offer something of their own for a price. So basically you can get free treatment, but be entered into the list, the register, or you can pay a little bit 
and uh, not have your name mm-hmm. entered into the list. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that becomes that's a big change. Um, the other big change that occurs in the uh, 1990s is, of course, that you have mon- uh, the the narcology loses what it had earlier on, which was a sort of monopoly on the knowledge about and interventions into alcoholism and addiction, right? So all kinds of other theories uh, of addiction, techniques for addiction, for treating addiction, um, organizations enter the sort of therapeutic market or the therapeutic economy, as I call it. Um, And these range from AA to homegrown things like the Russian Orthodox Church, you know, of course gets into the the business of of treating uh, addicts and alcoholics. Um, And then many, many other types of, uh, you know, uh, private practitioners, um, various kinds of shamans and hypnotists and uh, mages and extra sense people, Mm -hmm. you know, like there's, this is also the period when there's this kind of boom of interest in the occult in the uh, post-Soviet Russia. Um, And then, and then finally Scientologists also are involved in this, in a, they have their own anti, um, the the drug treatment program, Mm -hmm. which is explicitly very anti-psychiatric and Mm anti-narcological. So, um, so basically, what narcology finds itself in, in, a, in a position where it's not a, it's competing with a whole lot of different ideologies um, and therapeutic regimes for dealing with alcoholism and addiction, some of which are explicitly anti-narcological, right? Um, and the kind of argument I make in the in the last change, of course, is that you see the rise of uh, drug addiction which mm-hmm. you didn't really have. I mean, it's not that it didn't exist in the Soviet period. There's a whole history of Soviet sure. drugs and drug addiction, which which gets kind of written out of the history, especially in the 1920s and 30s. But essentially, you, what you had in the before the Soviet, uh, before the post-Soviet period, was small-scale production of kind of homemade opiates. Um, and what happens in the 1990s um, is that. Um, kind of commercial grade heroin, if we can call it that, or the the kind of heroin that gets exported all over the world enters alongside um, hard currency markets, essentially. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so you have these new problems of different kinds of uh, addiction that the narcologists are dealing with. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of a lot of what I look at in the book is how the narcologists um, we're trying to manage these challenges to their authority, to the legitimacy of their authority. And one of the things I argue is that in, in some ways, that what many people did was that they turned to um, the actual interaction with the patients. That the, the, in, in a sense, they, they, they found that um, ex- exerting more of a kind of charismatic authority um, with individual patients was one way to manage this kind of loss of more institutionalized forms of authority, mm-hmm. at least at least during the kind of 90s and early 2000s period. Mm-hmm. They, they continued, uh, at least with one of the treatment um, regimes of the Soviet period, that is uh, Kadyrovania. They, they continued to mm-hmm. do that. Is that right? 
Yes, that's right. Um, it's con- it's continued, and then it gets it gets hybridized in all kinds of ways. People um, pick it up and bring it together with sort of Russian Orthodox imagery, with imagery drawn from different shamanistic traditions, with New Age stuff. I mean, it basically gets it gets kind of morphed and um, hybridized with all kinds of other um, traditions and forms of uh, healing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and, and recently it's actually been, there's been, uh, uh, it's becoming even more controversial. There's been an attempt to crack down on it in, uh, in Moscow in the last couple of years. But uh, we'll, we'll see how successful and, and, it'll be because it's been quite, quite widespread. And, and then you mentioned another uh, or related treatment form, uh, and I don't remember whether the Soviets did this or not, but it, I think it's called um, Himsashita. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I kind of treat those as two, two versions of a very, of more or less the same kind of thing. Okay. Um, I mean, the, the difference with Himsashita is that it literally means chemical protection. And what it is, at least nominally, is it's the use of disulfiram, uh, which is a um, medication that makes your body unable to process uh, is, ethanol. Is that what's called? Is that antabuse? Antabuse, yeah. It it's is. The same yes. Okay, good. I'm yeah. sorry. I should antibuse, have known that. Yeah. yeah. Right. So that's so that's widely used. It was discovered in the 1930s in Denmark and has been used all over the world. You know, continues to be used to some degree in places like the United States, usually yeah. as a kind of an adjunct to other forms of. Uh, therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, but what was interesting about its use in uh, the Soviet Union was that essentially, um, not at all cases, not everywhere, but it often became a form of what the clinicians themselves referred to as placebo therapy. Yeah. Um, in that they would, uh, rather than injecting people or giving them real uh, antabuse or disulfiram pills, um, they would give them some kind of a um, neutral solution and tell them that this is what they were getting. Um, and then there are various, like, very sort of well-known versions of this that were developed. So, like, these injections that they call torpedoes, which were supposed to act for a long period of time. And then a very popular version in which they would implant a capsule um, which was supposed to be a long, long kind of release, uh, slow release version of this. And this was actually carried out, you know, I think beginning in the 1970s. I think even Vladimir Vysotsky, the famous uh, mm-hmm. folk uh, musician, uh, underwent this kind of therapy. Um, and uh, this was, again, one of these kind of very culturally very widespread forms of of treatment, but it was not ever clear. Often, it was not clear to patients whether they were receiving kind of real active uh, um, drugs in these in these uh, implants or not. Mm-hmm. I'm just I'm just trying um, to I'm, tr- I'm trying to think about. Well, there are two things that come to mind when I read about yeah. this, which I, and I found that amazing. First of all. I don't know if this is very helpful, but the American medical establishment would never authorize treating people like this, would they? No. 
<laughs> yeah, this is what I was thinking, yeah. too. There's just no way this could pass muster in the United States, giving people placebos and things. Yeah, and it even, even you know, in Russia, it's not entirely it, – it doesn't operate fully in the open, right? I mean, when mm-hmm. you read – you read medical books on, on narcology, often there's a passing, like a, a few paragraphs that refer to this and they always say like, well, this is something that sometimes happens, but it's really bad and we shouldn't do it and it's fraudulent and so on. At the same time, uh, I, I found that just I only had to dig a little bit and push physicians a little bit in the hospital to find out that this is essentially what mm-hmm. they were doing, that it was extremely right. widespread. Right. Um, and then not in some like backwater place mm-hmm. in the main uh, municipal treatment center hospital of St. Petersburg, right? Yeah. So it's so it's very central. Yeah, and I and I want to I want to make sure that the listeners understand I'm not condemning it, and and I don't, it might work really wonderfully. I'm just saying it points up the kind of difference between yeah the way in which they do it there and the way in which we do it here. It might work wonderfully. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> but there's no way you can do it here and and keep yeah. any sort and, of yeah. <laughs> And this question of efficacy, I mean, it's not one that I address directly because that's not sort of my... Sure, I understand that. ...some ways my interest, but it's... I mean, I'm interested in the ways that people make claims about efficacy in order to kind of enact it. Um, and But it, it should be said that I haven't found any, um, uh, you know, good studies that would look at these kinds of therapies and actually... Um, Compare them to to others, and would 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 say right. You know, well, this is a this I is a very difficult thing to study. Patients? Yes, it is. Absolutely, it's, it's extraordinarily difficult because it's fuzzy practically everywhere. Yes. You know, you're presenting with something which doesn't have a firm diagnosis. It's partially self-diagnosed, and you know, it, it it can be episodic, but sometimes it's not episodic. And you know, some people can really use very heavily and be alcoholics, and some people use lightly and be alcoholics. And then people go spontaneously into remission. You know, it's like a miracle. They never touch AA, and they don't go to any clinics. And and sure. some people are in AA forever and relapse eighty times. You know, and I, it's just not. A, it's not. Uh, there are no. Uh, there are no straight edges there. Or no right angles with this business. Sure. I can tell you that. Um, and then the second question I had about Kadiravanya and, and Himzashita was: um, I'm just wondering, from the from the perspective of the person who uh, is presented by their family or presents themselves to a narcologist and says, "Okay, I'm an alcoholic. I'm having a real hard time. I can't drink safely. Whatever it is." Is this person in the know about the fact that they might get a placebo, or is it just unknown to them? Is this just a secret, a trade secret that we're letting out? That's a really interesting question, um, and I and I grapple with this a lot. I I think that um, that for many many people they're not in the know about this, um, and the way that the physicians for the most part treat it is that um, patients don't know about this, and for that reason we need to not talk about it too mm-hmm. much, right? Yeah. So it's a kind of trade secret. Um, and, you know, there were even, like, even one physician I talked to who was very critical of these things and wanted to institute things like therapeutic communities and AA um, basically said, we need to not undermine the faith in these therapies because we don't have anything to replace them right now. Mm-hmm. So, um, on the other hand, I got the sense from some patients um, and and from some physicians in the way that they talk about it was that some patients at least would come to this with a sort of 
almost willful kind of denial of disbelief, um, a sort of sense of, I know that this might not be all, that, that I might not believe in all of this, right, or how this works, mm-hmm. but I need something to get me through. Mm-hmm. I need something that will have this kind of effect on me that will scare me out mm-hmm. of drinking. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that, um, I think, yeah, that, that would Yeah, that, that doesn't really, uh, it's consistent with my experience with AA because before I went into AA and I come from a long line of alcoholics, I didn't know anything about it at all other than maybe what I had seen on TV a couple of times. I mean, I, I really was in a profound ignorance about what is a major and well-known institution in the United States and the world. So it's not surprising right. to me that people who are going to seek treatment for alcoholism in Russia don't know how they treat it, because I had no idea whatsoever. <laughs> so, so yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. So let's talk a little bit about AA in Russia. You say it came uh, started in the late 80s under uh, Gorbachev, and then in the 90s um, it had a peculiar patron, which I was, this is kind of a typical American story. Can you talk a little bit about that? Right. So, again, because AA is not centralized in any way, because each group uh, – runs itself kind of autonomously yep. mm-hmm. there's no story there's no uh, um there's no singular story either of aa arriving in russia mm-hmm. um because there are basically is the story of these different groups um more or less autonomously starting up mm-hmm. in different places mm-hmm. um many of these have the similar kind of a narrative which involves some american uh either a, a founder or some kind of a figure who comes in and gives them the ideas about, like, basically lets them know about this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I uh, focus on in the book is this particular group that was really central to Saint Pe- the St. Petersburg AA community um, and that is linked to this uh, rehab center. Um, and essentially, uh, this was started um, by, uh, by a man who was an executive, Louis Bantel, who was an executive of U.S. tobacco, um, and it's quite an interesting kind of colorful story because um, he was, you know, in the business of selling uh, smokeless tobacco. Mm-hmm. This was the company that had kind of popularized uh, this smokeless tobacco among, um, uh, like, skateboarders and, and mm-hmm. snowboarders and this kind of demographic, right? Um, and they were looking for new markets and were reaching out to Eastern Europe. Um, and uh, Louis Bantel, who was, you know, described himself quite openly as a, a, a recovering alcoholic and had been going to AA for many years, um, for him, a big part of getting into the Russian world also involved trying to spread uh, AA. Um, and he, he initiated this, um, what eventually became this treatment center, mm-hmm. um, the House of Hope. Uh, so it's quite interesting because it's also, you know, a very much, uh, a, a very much in that set on that side is sort of a North American kind of a liberal, I mean, liberal in the long sense of liberalism yeah, no, idea of how we deal with, sure. uh, how we deal with addictions, right? Um, and in in very much in line with the idea that comes from AA, which is that um, 
it's not about the substance. Mm-hmm. Right? It's yeah. not about uh, the substance. It's about it's about something that's in certain people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so um, yeah, so that was the that was the the kind of uh, germ of that particular center, and it's it, it eventually was established as a the first and uh, only uh, free of uh, charge uh, alcoholic. Fo- Treatment center focused on alcoholism mm-hmm. in um, in St. Petersburg area, and um, it's been I think challenging for them uh, in part because of the associations with the United States. Yeah. At times that has been a kind of a boon, and at other times that's been uh, something that they've tried to downplay and and something that they've legally had to manage in various ways because. Mm-hmm. Um, because of the attitudes of the Russian state towards, um, sure, you know, these organizations that get money from abroad. Mm-hmm. I, I guess one question that I had, and you know, I don't know anything about the AA in Russia, but I know a lot of Russians, and or I, I don't know, they, they would call themselves, they probably call themselves Russians, but they're Soviet people, and uh, compared to Americans, they're very private. There wasn't any sense that you were going to tell anybody your business in the Soviet Union or in Russia. Yeah. It's like, this is your business and not anybody else's business. You're not going to tell your story to anybody. You're not going to tell them anything. Whereas Americans are very, uh, again, I'm generalizing, obviously. Yeah. Americans are very different. And there's this sort of confessional strength streak in American culture yeah. where, you know, Bill Clinton feels your pain and stuff and tells you yeah, yeah. everything about his life. <laughs> you know, I can't say three words about Brezhnev's life. I really, I don't think the guy ever said anything personal at all in his entire public career. Yeah. I don't, you know, I, I, I can remember when I found out that Gorbachev was married. I didn't even know that. <laughs> you know, so right. th- this just seems to be a very different way of going about sort of interpersonal relations. And AA kind of requires that you go and spill the beans on yourself. So, yeah. d- does this have any? Did you did you encounter this? Was this a, was this? A, am I right in thinking this would be a kind of tough sell to Russians? Yeah, I mean, I think that some people definitely talk about this being a, a, a um, one of the obstacles. Right, one of the one of the challenges, um, and it's difficult to say. Like when you know, when you talk to people who are many people in the sort of movement who are trying to advance AA in Russia, many of them will tell you that they they are frustrated with it not being um, sort of spreading quickly enough or uh-huh. adequately. Yeah, um, and it's very difficult to say, you know, to judge in any more objective way whether that's true or not. Um, but it's true that they definitely um, will talk about that as one of the kind of challenges and you know in fact one of the one of the ways that the folks um, involved in this uh, House of Hope uh, program initially tried to get um, people uh, uh, on board with AA was to get a prominent certain prominent public figures uh, to uh, come out as spokespeople uh-huh. for it uh-huh. um, and one of the really interesting stories in this case, one of their most successful um, stories, was that they got this uh, local group of artists um, called the Mitski, yeah. um, who are the St. Petersburg <laughs> group, story. who were basically who were basically known in the Soviet period for being like for their performative like drunkenness, like that was their <laughs> that was their thing. <laughs> You know, they were, I mean, they were kind of like Charles Bukowski or yeah, something, sure. right? Like, yeah. But but in a in a sort of a little bit more clowny kind of way. Um, and so the Mitki um, in the 1990s 
uh, got on the wagon. They basically came to <laughs> they, they came to the United States. They went through treatment in a, in a couple of small treatment centers, and then they came back as uh, as uh, advocates um, oh, for yeah. AA and for this for this uh, treatment center. Yeah. So that was you know that was an attempt <laughs> to do something like um, you know to find the sort of the Betty Ford of of Russia, right? Of who who is going to be a kind of a celebrity or somebody uh-huh. who will come out and 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 speak out about it. Yeah. So I'd say that um, I think that's probably definitely a still a, a work in progress, and I and we'll have to see how it advances in the future. At the same time, I definitely felt like you know in in Russia there's this sense of like there's the there's that distinction of the public and private where you have your own networks of people Svayi, right the people mm-hmm. who are yours and those are the people who you can be who you are people are very intimate and close with often um as opposed to the people outside the network who are the people who are you don't know right, right. yeah um and i think that there's a way in which that cultural logic when it works with aa it it works by AA becoming another group of yeah, that's a good point. one's own people, that's right? These are, my, yeah. these are our people, right? Yeah. And so it, 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 key, it can key into that kind of cultural logic in a way. Yeah, that's an interesting um, point. Yeah. Yeah, I remember I was, the first time, I, this was a long time ago in Russia, and I was talking to people, and I overheard somebody point at me and say, one ninash, <laughs> he's not ours. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm like, it took me a second to kind of get it, but I... I guess I right. understood what he meant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So I can see how that might work because, you know, there's a, uh, some people will call a groups families of choice. You know, like mm-hmm. th- these are my family. I don't know who those other people are who I was born to, but this is our family. Yeah. But I'm always having studied the history of A a little bit and been in the culture for a long, long time. And I'm no big book thumper or anything like that. But, um, it, you know, all I, all I say about it to people is it worked for me. I don't know what will work for you. Um, mm-hmm. But it just seems to me like a very American thing. I, I know, again, I'm generalizing, but I mean, from the get go, it just seemed like it appealed. It, it was, it checked all the boxes that Americans would like, you know, meetings where you get to talk and you're recognized and they say your name and, you know, like Americans yeah. love this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas Russians don't like any of that stuff. <laughs> and so I'm amazed that it actually prospers any place outside the United States. But apparently it does because, I, you know, we have visitors all the time. I've never been to an A yeah. meeting overseas, but I, I see visitors come from, you know, they don't even speak the language. They come and they get it. So, um, and then, of course, you know, the steps themselves are, you know, they're, they're right out of American Protestantism. I don't know. You know, why not? Yeah. Why put a fine point on it? That's what they are. You know, <laughs> you can transform yourself. Yeah. And I like what you say about AA. I mean, when, I, I mean, I think you can overcomplicate these things, and, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but essentially, you, you say something to the effect of, well, it's a self help group. Right, you get together and you have group therapy with these people, and you identify with the group, and that's kind of how it works, I, in my right. opinion. I, you know, I, again, I don't want to overcomplicate it, but you're there with these people that have the problem that you have, right. and you talk about right. it a lot. Yeah. <laughs> it seems to me to be valuable. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. And again, you know, there are lots of debates about, you know, what, what, whether quote unquote whether it works. But I mean, I always say, you know, it works for the people it works for. And that's yep. enough. <laughs> I don't know. Yep. That's enough. <laughs> We're not looking for a hundred percent. If it's ten percent, if it's fifty, you know, it's fifty. Whatever, it's fine. It's good. So, 
anyway, it's been very interesting talking to you about all this. I really did learn a lot, Eugene. So um, could you close the interview for us? We've kind of run out of time um, by telling us what your current or next project is. Uh, sure. I've got uh, two projects which are quite uh, different from this one. Um, one project I've been uh, engaged in for uh, a little while is a, a, a laboratory study which looks at um, uh, behavioral epigenetics mm-hmm. um, in uh, a laboratory at McGill, which mm-hmm. looks at basically how the scientists are uh, explaining, drawing on new kinds of bioscientific forms of knowledge to explain suicide risk. Huh. Um, and that's a um, something I'm doing in collaboration with uh, uh, Stephanie Lloyd, a, uh, a colleague at Laval University. Uh-huh. Then the next thing that I'm planning to start, uh, hopefully next year, I've been wanting to start this for a while, is going to be a, a project on uh, undergraduates and uh, mental health in North America. Wow. Wow, we have to talk again because these are, I, I was going to say these are two of my favorite topics, but they're kind of downers, really, like alcoholism. Yeah. I mean, my father, my, fa- my father committed suicide, and so I've been told that oh. I'm at a high risk myself, and so I'm always interested in this topic. I really am. And then undergraduate mental health, you know, for, is really something that I deal with, every instructor does. But, sure. you know, yeah. we, see, we see this all the time. I mean, they just present yeah. to you, even though you're not a doctor, there it is, like yeah. right in front of you, and you don't know what to do. Um, so, I really did. This is, I envy you. These are great projects, great and worthwhile projects. So um, when you're writing them up, if they become books, uh, give us a call and we'll talk about them again. Okay. All right. uh, Let me say uh, to you, Eugene, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And let me say to everyone who listens to this podcast, thank you very much. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and we enjoy bringing you interviews with new authors like Eugene. And we hope that you tune in from time to time to listen to us. I hope you have a great week.